racism in school and in our conversations um, was really tied to the idea of you, this racist person or this racist part of the country or this racist moment of our history. I think if you really read things like Isabel Workerson's cast, if you read my book, Call and Response, if you read the coverage, what the activists and the educators and the legislators have been trying to tie together is saying that it's not about a bad apple, a bad place, a bad person. It's about something systemic. So this is something that we as a nation have to grapple with collectively. It's not about punishing or calling out any one person or one place or one moment. Hi, I'm Sandy Fowler, and you're listening to Mighty Parenting, a podcast where we explore parenting in a way that helps us and our kids find more happiness and fosters emotional wellness, even while solving problems with our teens and young adults. We learn through advice and stories from experts and other parents, and I'm so glad you've joined us. So welcome to Mighty Parenting, where we have real, raw, and relevant talk about raising teens and parenting young adults in today's world. We talk a lot about communication at Mighty Parenting. Our experts, myself, the communications email series that we share with you. And one of the keys to communicating well with our teens is to not be stressed. Because when we're stressed, we knee jerk, we jump in, we say things that we don't mean to say. And as I'm talking to parents, you guys are telling me that you don't have time for stress relief. So I've created a complimentary lesson for you that requires no time. Yes, you will have to listen to the audio, so it's going to take you a few minutes to do that. But the strategies I share with you don't require you to spend any more time on them. So pop over to sandyfowler.com forward slash no time and learn how you can start relieving your stress and feeling better today. Our conversation today is with Veronica Chambers, the author of Call and Response, the story of Black Lives Matter. Veronica is a prolific writer and editor and has a fantastic catalog of books to her name. In fact, I just added several to my reading list, so I'm looking forward to my Christmas stocking now. (laughs) And today she joins us for a discussion about Black Lives Matter, about protesting and social change, and what we need to know as parents, what conversations we need to be having and questions that our kids have. So Veronica, welcome to Mighty Parenting. Thank you. I'm so happy to be on. Me too. I just are going through your book and then our chat. I I think this is such an interesting and important conversation. And I know I touched on briefly in our conversation, you know, 2020 changed so many things for so many people and in a world that we live in that is shaped so strongly by racism how do you see the events of 2020 changing things well i I think that's a great question you know i think one of the reasons we decided to do a book about black lives matter wasn't really about solely just black lives matter but because it was a pivotal moment in our nation's history, you know, close to half a million people protesting in 550 locations protested on June 6, 2020, which was the peak of the protest. And experts across the board 
believe that as many as 26 million Americans participated in some sort of Black Lives Matter event last summer, which would make it the largest protest in the nation's history. So I think that, yes, this is about Black Lives Matter. Yes, it's about race, but it's really about a moment where more Americans on any topic that has come up literally took to the streets to let their opinions be heard. And so I think that's important. I think the heart of the book is why do people protest and why does it matter? And I think the protesting is something that we get a vision around. Like you talked about people taking to the streets and it's beautiful and it's important, but you also talk in the book about other forms of protesting. So if, you know, if we're talking to our kids and they are passionate about whatever topic, what are some of the ways that they can protest things that they think need to be changed? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm a parent and I started writing kids books before I had a kid of my own, but I was a really passionate and happy auntie and godmother. And so it's been really a progression to me of having conversations with my nieces and nephews. And then as my friends started having kids and I became a godparent, and then I had a kid, a daughter of my own. And I think that it's really important for kids to know that first of all, peaceful protests is the most effective form of protest in the world. You know, there were studies that have been done and Researchers have shown between 1900 and 2006, more than 50% of nonviolent movements around the world have succeeded in accomplishing their goals. So there's a reason why people march and take up signs is because it works. You know, I'm actually just back from Glasgow where I was part of the New York Times Climate Hub during COP26 and the youth activists there, really the young people from countries all around the world were the most powerful voices on the street. So I think, um, and they and the leaders, the world leaders were all listening to them and quoting from them and reading what they had to say. And, and that's I, that was something amazing to watch. I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but it's well, I of, think that yeah. that was important. And you talked in the book, though, about being able to protest through art and song and other forms. Absolutely. So the first our book is divided into two halves. The first half of the book is really about the racial justice movement and the arc from the modern civil rights movement to the Black Lives Matter movement. And basically, how did we get here? And what has happened along the way? Um, I felt like as a parent, it was really important for my daughter to understand that the events of 2020 have connections to things and systems that go all the way back to reconstruction. So that's the first half of the book. We can talk more about that um, in a bit. But the second half of the book, as you said, is what do people do with the information when they get it? So the second half of the book starts with a chapter on athletes. How do champions lead? And so it talks about people like Colin Kaepernick and Muhammad Ali, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the 1968 Olympics, Arthur Ashe and Maya Moore and Naomi Osaka. So sports athletes have always been a very vital part of protest in America and using the love of sports to say these are the things that matter to us. 
Um, the book also, as you mentioned, talks about music. It talks about both the anthems of protest and the music that artists have written to use as protest. One of the things that was so beautiful to us and we showed it was that, you know, the, the protests were not just marching and signs and all that stuff, but it was also, I mean, there were people who were playing violin in Central Park and saying, this is our protest. People were playing piano, people were making music, they were singing songs. Um, they were Caribbean steel drum bands in Brooklyn. And so we thought that was really important. Um, there were, we show at a different part in the book, all across the country, there were bicycle protests. And you would see parents with kids on tricycles to people who are doing like bike tricks, hundreds of bicyclists taking to the streets. There were skateboard protests, there were surfer protests, they were paddle outs for Black Lives Matter. Um, and of course there was art, there was, you know, a sign is a form of protest, which becomes art, but we did a whole section on murals. And honestly, that was one of the hardest sections to edit because I think we included 20 murals, but we probably went through about 300 or 400. And what was so moving to me about the murals is we really ended up being drawn to the ones that were had a story behind them. So one of the murals was one that a father and daughter did together. Um, one of the murals were university students who weren't even artists, but they were sitting in a classroom. They were talking about the movement and they decided that they would work together over a weekend on a mural. So like you said, there's just so many different ways to share um, your vision for how to make the world a better place, which is what I think is really central to this book. It's, it's, it's about Black Lives Matter, but really it's a prototype for any kind of social change. And that's where we really end the book. And we talk about the kids who do March for Our Lives, the climate change activists, um, just all kinds of youth activists and how they have a commonality in both tools and messaging that um, come from the chapters that you see throughout the book. So the book really, I feel like it gives us as parents two really important conversations to have. One is kind of what we were just talking about, which is how our kids can be activists. And we did another show also, 135, where we talked about nonviolent activism and how it changes the world. And, and that's a way to help our kids, to help our kids find meaning, find purpose in their lives, which is something our expert guests have told us that they need. A lot of the times we'll bring up problems and the answer will be your child needs purpose. Yeah. You know, talk to them, listen to them, what they're passionate about. And so you've talked in here about, okay, take what you're passionate about and do something with it. And then this other part of the conversation is the racism side, which right. you said before we started talking that when you were in when you were writing this book, your daughter was 13. Could you tell us a little bit about how being a mother shaped your writing? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, as a Black parent, I'm Afro-Latina. I, um, I think every Black parent has to make a decision about 
when and how they talk about racism to their kids. And honestly, I had sort of hewed to the side of talking about history and art and legacy and really trying to inspire my daughter about the kind of cultural legacy of Black people in America. And so when all of these things happened and my daughter was old enough and she had her own phone and she could read the newspaper and she does, she's very, you know, she's passionate about history. She's passionate about current events. I couldn't keep the news from her. I actually had a lot of catching up to do. And because I hadn't had all of the conversations with her about from reconstruction to lynching to police brutality to all these things. I mean, not to say that they that she was entirely unfamiliar, but not the depth of conversations that could really help her sit with what was going on last summer. Um, I will also say, because I know that this is a multiracial audience, um, I, I also had a very specific challenge in that during the height of the protests in June of last year, you know, our kids were inside. It was still, you know, locked down, at least where we were living, you know, not a lot of inside things going on. She was very attached to her device. Um, she was kicked out of a chat group because the other kids said that she was quote unquote obsessed with race. And because she wanted to talk about George Floyd, because she wanted to talk about Ahmaud Arbery. And the other kids who weren't Black were like, we're tired of talking about this. And it broke my heart. <laughs> and because literally here was a kid who'd been inside for months, who'd had her 13th birthday in lockdown. And now her friend group had shut her up, shut her out um, because she wanted to process and talk about some of the things that were happening. So I had two jobs, you know, I had the historical job, but then I also had the social job. I, it just breaks my heart too. And it, for me, takes it to this place of, as parents and, and as a white parent, that this is part of my job is to be, I also need to be talking to my kids about racism and part of that conversation needs to be, we don't understand. And so we really need to listen. And when someone like your daughter, where you hit the nail on the head, you said, she's trying to process it. And so, you know, helping our kids to have compassion, to give space. And I think a really key component in that is instilling them, instilling in them a desire to learn around racism because there's so much here to unpack and, and there's racism is a topic, but there's also how it impacts each individual and how they process it and how they deal with it. So really, I mean, we need to have hundreds and thousands of individual conversations to, to get a feel for this. So I think helping our kids get curious and maybe even teaching them to ask some of the questions that we keep going with, you know, over and over on Mighty Parenting is just listening. And how did, how did that feel? That sounds like it was hard. What do you think about that? What would you like to do about that? What would you like to see done about that? Right. And I, I think 
I think that one of the things that I actually think was very powerful about the Black Lives Matter moment of 2020 is that when I was growing up, racism in school and in our conversations um, was really tied to the idea of you, this racist person or this racist part of the country or this racist moment of our history. I think if you really read things like Isabel Workerson's cast, if you read my book, Call and Response, if you read the coverage, what the activists and the educators and the legislators have been trying to tie together is saying that it's not about a bad apple, a bad place, a bad person. It's about something systemic. So this is something that we as a nation have to grapple with collectively. It's not about punishing or calling out any one person or one place or one moment. And and I think that that is something my daughter really understood last year. She wasn't saying, I think these people are so racist because this happened. She was saying, I did not know that racism was such, that race and race bias was such a deeply entrenched part of our history that I actually now have to grapple with as a 13 year old. And, um, you know, there's a line in Isabel Workinson's cast where she goes, you know, we, we like to push this off as a horrible chapter. And there are all these horrible chapters, but when you really like look at the big picture, she says, this is what America has been longer than it has been not been, which is a little bit of a chilling statement. But if you know that, then you say, okay, how have we made it better? And how do we continue to make it better? And I think, like you said, I think empathizing curiosity and compassion for our kids across the board is the beginning of everything. Um, it's the beginning of healing. It's the beginning of visioning a better world and making it better. It's the beginning of our own growth and intelligence. You know, one of the things I was trying to communicate to my daughter and I was trying to bring through in this book is that if you study the history, if you take a step back and say, there's a line that goes from reconstruction through lynching to the modern civil rights movement to the Black Lives Matter movement, then, then you can start to ask interesting questions. And we do a lot of school visits and kids wanna know how much of this is something the government needs to take care of? How much of this is about like segregation and people living in different neighborhoods? How much of this is about education and schools still not being equal? How much of this is about environment and climate issues and all of that? So they, they kind of wanna know like, how do you piece it together and where do the solutions come from? And those are great questions because the answer is every solution, every attempt at a solution is a solution. It is part of the prob problem solving. The minute you get in the mode of, I, not that I feel blame or defensive, but I actually would like to solve this problem, you're already part of the solution. I was in the same place as your daughter. Like you said, when, when we were growing up, and I'm older than you, so it was probably even more so for me, you know, racism was, it, it, it was kind of portrayed as this thing that 
some people felt, or you could do an individual act that would be racist. And I remember, oh my goodness, I don't even know how many years ago it was. I read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink. And one thing that he talked about in there that stuck with me, and I apologize because I'm going to butcher this. It's probably been 15 years since I read the book. Okay. So, well, the concept that stuck with me is he talked about a study somebody did where they were trying to look at racism and the impact on our thinking. And in the study, they found that they were like flashing up pictures of, of different people and then measuring the audience's responses, whether they were positive or negative emotions around these people or, and thoughts about these people. And both Black and white participants in the study rated Black people m- more negatively, whether it was uh, a, a any emotion. They, they just rated them more negatively across the board. And that came back to me last year as I was online participating in conversation, well, listening to conversations. It wasn't saying a whole lot because I was just trying to learn, kind of like your daughter, trying to process this, make sense of it. But that came back to me. And it was so painful to think about that there's so many aspects of racism, they're painful. But the idea to me that we've created a culture that makes people feel badly about themselves based on one physical characteristic, just based on skin color, was just really, really painful. And it it just sat with me. And it's it's something I think that has spurred me to make some of the changes that I'm making in your in my life. And I I love what you said there about every attempt at a solution is part of the solution because sometimes it can feel like, well, you know, this thing I'm doing is so small, like, okay, so I decided to reach outside my regular network to try and find a black business owner to take on this task that I, that I want to hire out from my business. It doesn't feel like a big deal, but what you said That's a big is, It's just, well, it's just that positive, right? If everybody's doing something, then we're all moving forward together. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I I loved, I can send you the link afterwards, but I wrote a piece for the New York Times parenting column, which I love. Jessica Gross was on leave, the parenting columnist. And so I did a guest post for her and it was about Bakers Against Racism. And, you know, last summer during all of this, a young pastry chef from DC named Paolo Velez, along with other people, everybody was like, what can they do? And I don't know if you've had them on, so stop me if you know. I have not. So no, I'd love to hear it. She's amazing. They thought, you know, well, we're pastry chefs, so we can bake. And so they started this campaign called Bakers Against Racism. And their goal was to convince 80 bakers to make and sell goods that support organizations doing racial justice work. Last summer, more than 2,000 bakers in 41 states and on five continents signed up and had their own bake sales. And it was extraordinary. And they, so far, the organization in one year has raised more than $2 million for groups such as Black Lives Matter, the Innocence Project, the United Negro College Fund. And, you know, Paula has this really beautiful quote where she says that, Baking has so much mindfulness in it. 
And it's a really great opportunity for parents and kids. And my daughter started stress baking last year and she's, I came home yesterday and she was baking, you know, chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, she'd had a little bit of a week and she was nervous about tasks and she texted my husband and she was like, can I go to the grocery store? Can I get ingredients to bake? And what Paula says is baking takes a little bit of patience and it takes a little bit of grace. So I always say you can bake the world a better place because in those times of reflection, you're really staying still and thinking about how to be someone that gives. And I think, you know, I can share this link with you. They're big. Yeah, we'll can- put it in the show notes. So yeah. please send that over and I'll add it to the show notes. So everybody yeah. can read the article. And you can follow them on Instagram at Bakers Against Racism. But I think if someone was looking for somewhere to start, you know, maybe it's having like a little bake sale with your kid and saying, we'll donate it to an organization that you really care about. I mean, something that I try to do with my daughter and I don't do it every week, but because, um, you know, it's hard to be consistent as a parent, but we do try to make Sunday's family give day and we try to give, you know, $5 or $10 to something that really matters and we talk about it and we watch videos and um, and I would say we average about twice a month. But I think that that sense of how do we sit together as a family and be a family that gives whatever we can, whatever we have um, is, is, is a great place for it's not about saying we have guilt or we owe anybody anything or we're part of whatever. It's just saying we just want to be part of, we want to be a family that gives. And, and I love Paula for how beautifully she said that. I, I love seeing my daughter like think through her baking. And I just, um, I just think that's a really great place to start. I like that idea. And in our family over the years, as we have moved away from gift giving, as people got older, we tended to replace that with charitable giving. And so we'll have a discussion around where do we want to donate? And I think that this could be a really interesting way to inform that discussion. One of the other things I wanted to ask you, Veronica, is I know just out and about in the world, I've heard all kinds of different comments about Black Lives Matter. So in a nutshell, could you tell us what that movement really is? And I know that's a tall order because it is, you know, it's so much of your book, but I just want to, I want people to understand, I want us all to understand what it really is and the way it started was so interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, Black Lives Matter is a really large umbrella term for a large group of organizations. It was started by three young women. Um, Alicia Garza did a post after a particularly um, heartbreaking moment of police brutality around the Trayvon Martin killing. Not that wasn't actually police brutality, but um, around a shooting um, around the Trayvon Martin shooting and. Um, And she really just posted it as a love letter. And, you know, Bell Hooks says that every social justice movement has love as its guiding force. And I think that's something that kids are often surprised to hear. Um, I think that they 
have, and understandably, given how polarizing the media can be at this moment, um, I think that kids are often surprised to hear that Black Lives Matter started with the love letter. Um, and I think that it really has, it's not one central organization, it's literally dozens of groups and individually led organizations across the country that have come together around the topic of police brutality, but really are looking at what does equality look like on a lot of different fronts. And it's always been a multi-purpose movement. It's always been a movement that's looked at equality, disability rights, economic equality, queer LGBT um, community rights. And so I think the way that it was termed can make it seem very much about one group versus another group, but the actual work. And I think part of the reason why it was so compelling, it was the most diverse. It wasn't just millions of people in the street, but one of the most diverse racial justice movements of our time is because the people who have been involved in the movement understand that it is not just about race. It's really about equality and humanity and saying that we do not have our humanity and equality when black people are disproportionately shot and killed in law enforcement and in custody. And that is, it's a troublesome statement to some, but it is a statement that's borne out by a lot of research. And, and I think what is heartbreaking is we've now all seen it again and again on videos that I myself wish I could erase from my mind. In the book, you, you talked a lot about this and you shared Malcolm X's quote, said, I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who it's for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost. And as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. And I think that ties in so well with what you said that that the social justice social justice movements are about love. And unfortunately, oftentimes the press happens in the places where frustration built up to a point where people couldn't contain it anymore and they act out physically violently or in places where people who aren't working out of love, people who harbor hate in themselves, take advantage of the peaceful protesting going on to create other issues. and, And that's what gets a lot more coverage. And so I love this idea that we we can talk to our kids. We can talk to them about racism. We can teach them to approach each other with love, with curiosity. You said um, empathy, curiosity, and compassion is the beginning. And I think that that's absolutely perfect. Veronica, I so appreciate your time in this conversation today. I, I want you to tell us where we can find you. And also you said that you and your... Uh, uh, your other, your co-author, people who've worked with you on the book, that you are doing Zoom events with schools. So if you could also share how parents could get in touch with you about something like that, if their school wanted to do that. Sure. Well, thank you so much for hosting this conversation, holding this space. I, I'm very appreciative of 
all the ways in which converse, what conversations like this symbolize. Um, so yes, my co-author Jennifer Harlan and I have been doing Zoom events with schools, with libraries, um, some independent bookstores have set it up so that like in the town where I lived for a really long time, Hoboken, Little City Books, and you can contact them if you want to know how they did it. Um, last week, we did five high schools and middle schools. So they just, because they have a relationship with the librarians and teachers, they held a Zoom and then shared the link with a bunch of different schools. And we were able to talk to, you know, a bunch of kids all in 45 minutes. And we show some of the pictures of the books and we take, I mean, pictures. So they're photographs from the New York Times um, of all kinds of protests and youth activists and all that good stuff, but also the murals and the athletes and the bakers against racism and all the good stuff, all the inspiring things too. And then we take questions. Um, the best way to contact me is through HarperCollins. And my publicist there is John Sellers, S-E-L-L-E-R-S. And he's just john.sellers at harpercollins.com. Well, thank you again, Veronica. I, I do. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your book. And I can't wait to read some of your other books too. I really busted out my reading list. So, <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so happy we got a chance to meet. And I really, um, you know, I really hope that the parents who are listening will give themselves a break and just know that I'm, I'm with you. I know how hard this is every day. And I know that we're all doing our best and, and I'm just hopeful that we'll continue to be able to connect and work together to, you know, raise our kids to be the leaders and, and the citizens that we want them to be. Yeah, that's, that's why we're here, right? And Mighty Parents, that's why you're here. Thank you for being here. I appreciate you doing this. And remember, if you're here, if you're listening, you already are a Mighty Parent. You got this. And I will see you next week. Mighty Parents, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mighty Parenting Podcast. If you're ready for more, visit MightyParenting.com where you can get your free email series, How to Talk to Your Teen, with tips for communicating with your teen in a way that builds connection and communication. You can also get Mighty Parenting Plus so you can access our private podcast, which includes all the Mighty Parenting episodes, behind the scenes, guest highlights, and more. And of course, remember to share the podcast with another parent to support them on their parenting journey.